6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. He divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them into Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, think of that, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return. Imagine he was impressed, because Abraham pulled off what the king of Sodom couldn't. He brought, right? And out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Shadalamara and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheve, which is in at Kingsdale. Then we have this name show up out of nowhere. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, um, Zedek means righteousness. Melchi is king. Melchizedek is a title. He's the king of righteousness, and he's also the king of Salem. But he's also a priest. This is, now right away, if you're a student of the scripture, you're surprised. Because here is a guy that is a king and a priest both. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that Levites and Judah, they, they, you don't have kings and priests combined. There are only three people that are kings and priests. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Jesus Christ will be a king and a priest. Who's the third? Probably sitting right here. Yeah, let's hope so. You betcha. God bless you. Yeah. And Melchizedek blessed him, like a priest would, and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Very unusual title for God, but I won't get into that here. And he blessed, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Abraham give him, gave him tithes. Okay? Abraham gives him tithes. That's going to be a big deal to the writer of Hebrews later. Because that proves that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And Levi is yet born. He's still in the loins of Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek priest is above a Levitical priest. Is the point the writer's going to make. It's a very rabbinical kind of point. But he's going to build on that little phrase. So Abraham's army, 318 trained servants, rescues Lot, okay. He's a Melchizedek king and a priest. He receives Abraham's tithes, and that's going to be emphasized in chapter 6 of, of Hebrews. And he administers bread and wine. Ministers bread and wine. That's interesting. Where does that come up again? In Joseph's dream in Egypt. Remember, he's in prison. These other two, the, the wine steward and the baker are there and so forth. And out of that comes eventually, strangely, his redemption out of prison, right? Bread and wine instituted here, uh, echoed in the story of Joseph, which is a type of Christ in many ways, in over a hundred ways actually, and uh, of course is emblem, emblematic to you and I in what? The Lord's Supper, right? Doesn't say bread and grape juice, by the way. It's bread and wine. I just thought I'd mention that. Okay. 
And there are, of course, allusions to this not only in, he- in Psalm 110, but in Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of Salem. Salem is an old name for Jerusalem. Some authors, some uh, authorities question that, but I think there's abundance of support that uh, what was then Salem later becomes Jerusalem. And he's also a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek, very interesting guy. He received tithes. It's the only mentions of the ones that we've just looked at, and uh, it's going to be contrast with the Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek represents this. The Levitical priesthood, I put it this way, is a separation of both priesthood and kingship. When Reuben forfeits his birthright, his priestly role in the family goes to Levi, and his firstborn son status goes to Judah. So it gets split there, interesting enough. And the two elements by Melchizedek, I think, are fascinating. We could start on and on by that. But okay. Again, let's get back to Hebrews, believe it or not. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, was heard that he feared. And this, of course, is our high priest in view here. His request for deliverance was granted fully in his resurrection with his proclamation of the death defeated. You're looking at Gethsemane and all of that here. Melchizedek order. Even Abraham ties. He blessed Abraham. He was a type of the priest that lives forever. Or oh, that writer to Hebrews is going to make the point that Melchizedek in the biblical text has no parents and no death recorded. That doesn't mean he didn't die. There's just no death recorded. There's no birth because he's in there as a type. Okay. It's interesting that all through the Scripture there are types of the bride of Christ. There's Ruth, the bride of Boaz, right? There's Eve, the bride of Adam. He's the first Adam, Christ the last Adam. You can go through every one of those in which the wife is a type of the church. There's seven of them. In none of them is their death recorded. Well, do you mean they didn't die? No, of course they died. But in model, they're they're, they're presenting as a type the bride of Christ, which, of course, doesn't die. Follow me? So Melchizedek is a type. Many people get confused by that. We'll get to that, too. See, Levi, even though he wasn't born yet, paid him tithes because he was in the, he's viewed as being in the loins of Abraham. And, of course, the permanence of Christ's priesthood is implied by the abrogation of the Levitical system. That's what's going to come up here. Melchizedek was a priest without an, without an oath and without an end. Not, excuse me, not without an oath and without an end. Priest can neither be transmitted or interrupted by death, and so on. Okay, no record of birth or death by Melchizedek. Was he Shem? You'll find people, well, he was probably Shem. Shem was still alive and all that. No, because we know Shem's genealogy. That would puncture the myth, that would puncture the type here. Was Melchizedek an Old Testament appearance of Christ? There are people that suggest that. No, because Christ's priesthood is after the order, after the similitude of Melchizedek. You can't be the type and be it together. It's a contradiction in terms. The Melchizedek, a celestial being of some kind. No, he's a man. That's what Hebrews 7 is going to bring out. So just take it for what it is. He's a type. A mysterious type, but a fascinating type. And it's emphasis, that type is emphasized by the writer to Hebrews. In chapter 7, we're going to really get into this. The king of righteousness and peace, all in Romans as well as Isaiah. His work will be righteousness and shall be peace. Righteousness, peace, and joy in Colossians. Made peace through the blood of Christ, justified by faith. See, Zedek, Melchizedek, is the, is the king of righteousness. As contrasted to Adonai Zedek. 
Adonai Zedek means the Lord of Righteousness, and he was the guy that was king of Jerusalem that created the alliance that Joshua has to put down. Joshua's adversary in the book of Joshua ultimately is Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, is he, which is antithetical, of course. He's a antitype. He's a, in fact, he's a type, if you went to, of, of the Antichrist. And it's very, very interesting that uh, Joshua is facing seven, seven heads, huh? There were ten altogether because three were put down by Moses before Joshua took over. So there's ten but seven, and you can go through all that later. Okay, five contracts. Jesus has a better position. He's a better priest. He's a better priesthood because he's a better covenant, a priesthood, a better sanctuary, and based on a better sacrament. The word better, 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 better is all through the book of Hebrews. So that is the background fabric of the writer, but that's not his main point. His main points are the warnings. He continues here, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he severed. Learned obedience? That throws a lot of people. He learned from the things that he suffered. It's a play on words in the Greek, from a Greek proverb, that he learned by obedience, that he, 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 he obtained obedience. doesn't mean that he learned. I'm not implying. Many people jump to all kinds of, of improper Christology from that. Christ didn't learn by obedience in the way we would think of that, in the English what that means. We wouldn't go that way. And being made perfect, he became the, the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Does that say eternal salvation? Well, if it's eternal, you can't lose it, can you? Let's not confuse ourselves, right? Okay. Called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Eternal salvation. Remember, Jesus said, to tell us die. It is finished. can be translated, paid in full. John 19. Now, the obedience that's addressed here is not the obedience of works, because salvation is never by works. It's the obedience is the obedience of faith. And that's what he's talking about here uh, as we go through. And we'll get that. Now, what, all this is a build-up to a rebuke. The author develops the topic of the priesthood, but now he interrupts himself because he's going to say, you guys aren't ready for what I'm about to teach you. What I'm about to teach you is too advanced for you. Listen to this. He's going to give a preamble before he gets to warning number three. His warning is about stagnation. Your, I'm going to pretend you are the listeners of the Epistle of Hebrew. Your failure to progress to spiritual maturity. That's what he's going to deal with here. There, it's going to be the third of five warnings. I want to remind you once again, all warnings are a unit. They go together and complement each other. Each builds upon the other. Each intensifies until the final fifth one. And each of these rely heavily on Israel's exodus as the example for us as individual Christians. Paul wrote in Romans 15.4, Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning. Well, this is, this is going to lean heavily on those Old Testament examples. The exodus generation was a redeemed people. They never went back to Egypt, they, but they failed to heed God's instruction and therefore were judged by being disinherited. All were written to believers, all five of these. They did not represent a loss to the past aspect of salvation, that is justification. The warnings represent the very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards offered to the believer, which will be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. That's really what we're all talking about here. What's at stake? What are these believers going to lose? Forfeit or suffer? Not salvation. Rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And you cannot escape this by trying to apply it to others. The burden of Hebrews is not the rescuing of sinners from hell. It's the bringing of sons to glory. 
That's the burden of this book. Five major warnings. We had the danger of drifting when we were in chapter 2. We have the danger of disobedience introduced in chapter 3 through 4. We're now going to be in an area where it's the progress to maturity that's the issue. And he's going to highlight as a going in position the peril of being dull of learning and dull of hearing and dull of learning and dull of, prog and dull of progress. There are 16 different views of the problem verse I'm going to show you tonight. 16 different views. Then we're going to have two others later on as we get in the epistle. We're going to go from the danger of disobedience, which is the last one, to the progress towards maturity. Let's look, starting at verse 11. The writer says, Of whom we have many things to say, speaking of Christ and all of this, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. You notice how tactful he is of his audience? Yeah. Doesn't sound seeker-friendly, does it? Of whom? And of course, the of whom is Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek, namely Jesus Christ. And the writer cl clearly states that his readers are in no condition to receive the subsequent teaching. You guys are not ready for what's coming. That's where I'm going to leave it for the next session. <laughs> he calls them immature, backward, untaught, dull of hearing. That's what he's, that's what, that's what he's calling his listeners. For when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, not of strong meat. And he's going to continue. Have need of milk. And he's talking about you guys are, you're not, you should be teaching, but you need to be taught. The first principle, the ABCs, if you will. See, he's really accusing them of regression, failing to advance. The problem is the topics that are coming belong to the category of strong food, not milk. He divides it in two categories. Milk, that's for infants, and strong meat or strong food for the, to grow on. You're not ready for that. You're still on milk, is he? He's going to develop all that in chapter 7 going on, but he's saying, you guys aren't ready to go on. Why? You need to develop spiritually in order to show the ability and teaching instead of being retaught the same things over and over again. I won't ask for a show of hands. But how many of you are tired of going to church and hearing the same things over and over and over again? I know some of you are saying the same thing here. I keep reviewing too much at the first of your session. <laughs> no, but I, I can remember when I was at the Naval Academy, we, you didn't have to go to the chapel. You could sign up for what we call church parties and go to one of the churches. And it was a way to sample different churches out in town. But you signed up for a semester, so you were stuck for that for the semester. And it was a way of sampling, and I tried several churches for change. And I, there was this one Baptist church. It was a great church, nice pastor. But every Sunday morning was an altar call. Every Sunday morning was a, a sermon to the unbeliever to accept Christ. Now, that's great, but not every Sunday. You know what I'm saying? I remember that I was grateful when I could sign up for another church party. I just got tired of that message. I could, you know, anyway. Stronger food. The milk of the Word is what Jesus did on earth. His birth, His life, His teaching, His death, His burial, resurrection. The meat of the Word refers to what He's doing now in heaven and on. And this is all going to be developed in chapter 7 as we go on. But let's continue with chapter 5 here. The writer says, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the Word of righteousness, for he is a babe. If you're in that category, you're babes, he's saying. What do you mean by the Word of righteousness? See, we only grow on stronger food. As long as you're a believer fails to go beyond the basics, you'll remain a baby. That's what he's saying. 
Now I'll just insert that. How about you? Are you still babies? I don't think so. You wouldn't be here tonight. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You really don't know a topic till you teach it. That's the other implication here. Full age, the word is teleos, which means complete or mature. Strong meat belongs to the mature. All believers are to make proper use of what they know. There's two concepts here. Stronger food and using what you know. Not just listening and filling notebooks with notes, but passing on, teaching. All of you should be either in or certainly teaching a small group somewhere. Think about it. You use it or you lose it, Scripture says. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. And then he lists a bunch of basics. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works or the faith toward God. Leave, in other words, he doesn't leave the babyhood and milk, press on to maturity. The danger is if they don't, they will make an irreversible decision that will permanently keep them in a state of spiritual immaturity, and we'll get to that. Again, the foundation. What is he talking about these foundation things? These are foundational truths. Repentance from the dead, works, faith toward God. And the doc doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Of this we will do if God permit. Okay. See, we're going to go on to perfection, hopefully, after these mere basics. Wait a minute. What are those mere basics? Well, two, they're in pairs. There's, three, there's six of them listed. Two are conversion ones. Repentance from dead works. That's a reference to the Levitical system, which was temporary and came to an end with the death of the Messiah. Once the Messiah died, it should have been over. It finally was. Even the temple is gone. That's the, that's the predicament of Judaism today. They know that the Torah teaches that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, and they have no place they can shed blood. They got a problem. So they redefined it all in the, 90th, in the Council of Yomnia later. But anyway. And the second one was faith toward God. Now, once and for all, turning to the Messiah. Positive commitment. Bear in mind, he's talking to Jews with their, from their basic ABCs. Next one is ceremonial elements, baptisms. They were used to immersions. The critical one was the immersion that we call baptism. They're, they're, they're uh, taking an identity with Christ. And the ceremonial, the reason it's plural is the ceremonial cleansing of the political systems are in view. And that's going to be dealt with in, in Hebrews chapter 9. And so the, to a Jewish believer, baptism marked the final point of their separation from Judaism. And that's what they're chafing under. They're thinking about going back. Big mistake. That's what he's trying to try to get across here. And the laying on of hands. And that's the, in the Old Testament, the way of imparting blessings and also appointing someone to an officer work. It's also used all through the New Testament in a very similar way. So that's familiar to us. And the last couple are eschatological ones. Resurrection from the dead, which of course is an Old Testament doctrine, not just New Testament. It's in Job 19, verse 25. Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, etc. And uh, also the eternal judgment, which of course is the great white throne and the lake of fire and all of that. So those are the six foundational beliefs. If you have those six, you're still a babe, according to the writer. Wow. That should be disturbing. Disturbs me. So that leads to a primary riddle. Comes the primary challenges in the entire New Testament is about to confront you. You ready for this? Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. Here's the way it reads. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted for the heavenly gift, tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Let's pause there. Are, are those people saved? 
Those that were once enlightened, that tasted of the heavenly gift, that were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, are they saved? Are these people saved? Absolutely. That have tasted of the good word of God and powers of the world to come. And by the way, it's really that, that's a phrase. The word ion in world there is singular, not plural. If it's worlds, plural, it's worlds. When it's singular, it should be t- it's the time domain. It's the millennium that it's talking about. But that's, that's not a big deal here. Let's go on. If those people... It's impossible for them, if they fall away and renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. Wow. A lot of people read that and say, gee, these are believers, and if they do these things, whatever they are, they can never again repent. Wow. Sounds like you, that sounds like you can lose your salvation. This is quoted by people, good scholars, that uh, uh, you can lose your salvation. This is one of the offsetting texts to the typical, right? Major riddle. Weren't these believers? They were once enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They were partaking of the Holy Ghost. They tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age, the millennium. They tasted that. Boy, incidentally, not only were they saved, it doesn't sound like they were babes either. Not like a little more than that, maybe. In any case, can these readers lose their salvation is a question. Turn your papers in when you've got your answer. And we'll... How does this passage impact your views of eternal security? How do you, do you ignore it? What do you do? What do you do with this? If you're in a you're in a home Bible study and one of your people challenges you, what about Hebrews six? What are you going to say? Well, they maybe not really weren't believers, or maybe they were only partial, or maybe it's partial rapture, or you know, you got all these conjectures. There are sixteen different interpretations of this passage in the among the commentators. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the word to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, boy, apparently they can lose their salvation. If they fall away, it would be impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they crucify themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put Him to open shame. Oh, boy. I know Catholics that crucify Christ every ma- at every Mass. They take, you know, that's what it's supposed to be in that, right? And, 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 and so on. Well, for your next session. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I want you to read carefully Numbers 14 one more time. It may have some surprises for you. Study carefully. Hebrews chapter 6, that's what we've gone through. And I want you for the next time to formulate your own analysis of this passage and explain how it impacts your perspective of eternal security. And many of you right now are really grateful that you're not taking this course for credit. (laughs) There are 16 different views, and we're not going to go through all of them, but we will give you the core of the issue. And we'll give you at least one answer. It may not be the right answer, but we'll give you an answer 
that seems to have been missed by all the classical commentators that I've seen. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just praise you for who you are, and we thank you that you have brought us to this very point in time. We know that there are no coincidences in your kingdom, that we're all here by your divine appointment. So, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for your word that you've opened to our hearts and lives. But above all, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, by whose shed blood we have the opportunity to approach you. We thank you not only for his gift on that cross, but we thank you that he ever liveth to make intercession for us, that he is alive right now pleading our behalf. Oh, what a high priest we have. What a high priest we have. And Father, as we struggle with passages that seem to confuse or seem to contradict our understanding, we pray, Father, for your discernment through your Holy... You've promised, Father, that the Comforter would teach us all things, not just a few, all things. Well, Father, we would just ask that you would use this verse that we've stumbled on tonight as a key to understanding what you have here for us. That it isn't a little problem that we stub our toe on, but rather it's a door or a window into a whole body of truth that you would have us apprehend. Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for where we are. And we ask you to help us outgrow our infancy, help us to progress to spiritual maturity, not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit. As we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our High Priest, who died for us. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.